This is the Workforce Show, and this is your host, Cindy Gern, today with Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. Appreciate your joining us for our conversation on leadership. It's uh, it's great to be uh, it's great to be on with you, uh, Cindy. I'm looking forward to the chat. Uh, Dr. Finkelstein, Sydney with the S Y D N E Y Finkelstein, is the associate dean for executive education, the Stephen Roth Professor of Management, uh, Tech School of Business at Dartmouth College, um, and the, and this program, if I'm correct, just uh, celebrated its 40th anniversary. Is that correct? Um, the other thing I want to mention before we begin our conversation with Dr. Finkelstein is that he writes a column uh, for BBC Capital, uh, you know, part of the BBC Communications Network, and it's entitled Sid Weighs In. And he is, um, he writes on topics that, you know, we are all interested in, and we're going to be talking about a couple of those uh uh, today in our interview, uh, one uh, we're going to get started though, and we're going to talk about his projections for the future. Uh, what's going to happen in 2014 that's going to impact uh, life as we know it, uh, economic life, business life, uh, talent life, and and this is really uh, an important subject because it enables us to plan. Uh, as we gather information that uh, will impact how we set our own career goals, but also our business goals. And before I let Dr. Finkelstein take over and share with us his thoughts and ideas on this, I just want to mention, Dr. Finkelstein, that the other night I went to an event where a documentary on uh, Hank Paulson was being aired called Five Years from the Brink. And then after the uh, the documentary, he came on stage and talked about his his experience as Secretary of Treasury and some of the uh, leadership issues that he faced, et cetera. And but one of the things he said that I thought was kind of interesting and relates directly to what you're going to be sharing with us uh, in this conversation is that he, when he became Secretary of Treasury under President Bush, uh, he. He went to uh, the president and said, "You know, I've done an analysis, and we're we're on the uh, you know we're on the uh, brink of some major economic disaster." And the president asked him, "Well, what kind of disaster? And is there any way we know where it's coming from that we so we can avert it?" And his response, his Paulson's response was, "We don't really know where it's coming from, but all the signs are pointing." to some very damaging situations. So passing the ball to you, Dr. Finkelstein, what, uh, what are the projections and what can leaders do to uh, help us plan for those changes? You know, it's, uh, it's always dangerous, uh, Cindy, to look into the, um, into the crystal ball and, uh, and say this is going to happen and that's going to happen because, well, you could be wrong. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and we never know for sure, but uh, uh, but actually, I think there's a there's a handful of things that I'm pretty confident about, uh, and not just for 2014. At least the first one that I'm going to mention is not just for 2014, but for uh, for years to come. And it's actually a really a really good one. Uh, uh, and and that is the role of women in in business. Um, today, uh, there are uh, just 23 uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are uh, that are that are women. 
Uh, that's more than uh, in any previous year, but it's only 23 out of out of 500. Nonetheless, they're uh, they're from some of the uh, biggest companies that uh, that are out there. You, you may recall GM just announced uh, maybe a couple of months ago uh, a new their new CEO, uh, uh, who's a woman, uh, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, uh, as well, all in the last year. Marissa Mayer at Yahoo is getting a lot of press, uh, but also the CEOs of uh, of Hewlett Packard, Meg Whitman, very famous. Of, uh, of IBM, of PepsiCo, they're all they're all women, and I think we're going to see more and more, and I think it's going to be an unbelievably uh, powerful influence on um, uh, on American business when that happens. And uh, and so uh, there's two there's two parts to uh, to dissect on that statement. Num- number one, uh, why do I think we're going to see more uh, women? And number two, why is that such a great thing? Uh, well, uh, uh, to the first to the first point. Uh, look at what's going on in, in education uh, and, and look at who's excelling uh, in middle schools, in high schools, and into universities. Uh, there are a lot of universities that um, have something close to affirmative action for, for boys, uh, which is to say uh, they could fill their class if it's just on the basis of pure quality. They could fill their class with many more uh, w- uh, girls than boys or women than men. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's, uh, that's really different than what it, what it used to be. Uh, women are, are excelling. Uh, I know there's still plenty of bias. There are plenty of challenges, but the results, despite the bias that exists, it, uh, are, are very, uh, are very positive, very encouraging. Uh, you go and look at, uh, for example, the Tuck School. We have a four week boot camp in business for the best liberal arts students in the world. Um, and uh, and it's extremely selective, and, and the students are incredible. And 50% of them are um, are, are, are women, uh, and 50% are are are, are men. Uh, those numbers start to translate as women enter. And this is not a brand new thing; it's been going on for a decade or longer. Uh, but women are in the workforce; they're moving up more quickly; they're forming uh, networks to support each other. Uh, and, um, uh, and 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 so we're going to see. I think it's inevitable that we're going to see. Uh, um, a greater expansion of the talent pool, if you will, to who makes it to the very top. And uh, uh, and why is that a good thing? I guess it's kind of obvious. Anytime you expand the talent pool and increase the potential uh, number of people that uh, that have a chance to to be in positions of major influence uh, in the country uh, and in companies, uh, that's uh, that's obviously a great thing. But uh, at the risk of uh, uh, of drawing some stereotypes, uh, some of the skill sets that women often often bring. Uh, uh, collaboration, uh, teamwork, um, incredible willingness to to accomplish uh, to accomplish goals. Um, uh, these the, these collaborative and team based skills, I think, are among the most important skills uh, any leader needs to be successful. And uh, uh, women are certainly very uh, are certainly very competitive. But uh, uh, I think there's data to support this, and, and certainly my experience in and out of the classroom and working with executives as well, that, uh, that, that this enhanced balance where you're still competitive but you also are team-focused uh, and more collaborative uh, uh, can, pay, can, pay big, uh, can pay big dividends. I, uh, uh, you know, speaking about Washington, uh, I've, uh, I've thought for a long time that if we had more women in Congress, we would have um, we would have many fewer of these ridiculous uh, government shutdowns and breakdowns when nobody wants to uh, uh, when nobody wants to get off of uh, off of their stand and uh, uh, and are willing to to look for meaningful compromises. So 
so I would say this is this is going to be one of the biggest trends. 2014, it's already started, and it's going to continue for for a number of years to a number of years to come. Well, then, if that's a trend, my question is: What is the direct impact on the economy, on jobs, on education, uh, on planning for education, et cetera, in general? Yeah, well, you know, for the economy, it's uh, it's it's a it's an obvious and gigantic plus because you're going to have a more productive uh, economy when more talented people have an opportunity to contribute. For companies, uh, it means that if you uh, are sitting there and 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 uh, and looking around your management team and and do not see very many women, uh, you have to think about well, why why is that happening? Why are we not getting access to some of this incredible talent? Uh, if if you think about any class or any group, let's say um, um, you're a technology company and you look around, you, you don't have as many world-class software engineers. You'll say, what's going on? Impossible. Well, why don't we ask that question in some companies about why we don't have as many women in senior, in upper level and senior executive ranks? And and that's going to require uh, some some effort because if women are among the stars graduating from schools and MBA programs and law programs, etc., uh, and getting these uh, these uh, more and more of these high powered jobs, where where are they going to go? I mean, you need to attract them as a company, uh, as a management mm. team. You need to uh, uh, if you can't uh, get women interested in uh, in feeling like your environment and your culture and your company is a place where they can excel. Uh, you're 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 going to lose. Uh, you're, you're you're it's like tying tying one hand behind your back. And and I see this by the way uh, with some in some executive groups that I work with. When I walk in the room and, you know, we have a seminar or a workshop that I'm doing with, uh, you know, uh, 25, 30 different senior executives and there's one woman there, uh, uh, I often bring it up. I mean, why, what's going on here? Uh, and they're, they're often very traditional industries. Uh, but what's more traditional than automobile manufacturing? And look what right, GM has exactly. done. Right. You know, right, right. so it's a self-inflicted well, I just been, yeah. yeah, well... I want to get back to this, and also just so our listeners know, we are going to have more programs on women in the workplace. And uh, but, what's the backlash? I mean, what what about men? What's going to happen to men then? Where where is their role? Where are they going to be? I uh, you know I love I I love that question because the answer is boys, we have to up our game. Uh, if we think what got us uh, <laughs> these jobs before is because we're so brilliant, we're so wonderful. We better we better recognize that there was unbelievable bias uh, against women, and it, does, it hasn't gone away. It's still it's still there, but it's not uh, it's not at the same level. Uh, and, and in addition, uh, the talent pool was such that it was mostly men that that were graduating from MBA programs and and getting these these uh, these significant entry level entry level jobs. And and so uh, it's a lot easier to compete when half the population is not in the game. That's changing. Uh, that's changed. Uh, and so, uh, if we don't get better, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be the ones that will uh, will find better and better jobs going to uh, going to women. And uh, personally, I think that's a that's a great thing in the re- for the reasons I've said. But if it's it could also be a great thing because it might also um, remind uh, re- remind the dominant uh, executive class, which is still today men. Uh, um, you you got up you got up uh, you know we got up our game, and and that's a good thing too. Mm-hmm. The uh, the challenge, I think, as well, is in, uh, I guess we needed to find leadership uh, or executive uh, roles and functions before I even asked this question because 
if uh, more women are in in industry or in business and taking on leadership roles, that assumes that there's more women in, in the workplace in general and moving up the corporate ladder. Uh, if, if we take that same model and apply it to the, one of the big conversations that I wanted to ask you about that I hear all the time and read about all the time is our skills gap. And you mentioned technology. Uh, we had, what, 80% of the PhDs graduating in a technology field or from uh, countries other than the United States. Mm. Uh, what, uh, what's causing that? What's going to change that? Is that going to be a major uh, uh, influence on our economic well-being? And that goes back to the question yeah. of education. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's actually, a, it, I mean, it's, a, it's certainly a worrisome uh, uh, trend um, and, you know, a lot of people have, have talked about it, the, uh, the number of uh, young people that are graduating with so-called STEM uh, degrees, science, technology, uh, mm-hmm. engineering, and medicine is, is, is STEM. And, and uh, the numbers are not as, uh, uh, as large as they need to be to sustain our economy. The good news mm-hmm. is we have, uh, in the United States at least, uh, a long, uh, more than a tradition, it's kind of the bedrock of society, which is called immigration. Uh, everyone, or almost everyone here, came from somewhere else. Um, and uh, um, now I know immigration policy is is a current concern of of Congress, and and it's a, it's a real mess. Uh, but uh, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, that that's going to be one of the solutions. We have a much more welcome welcoming uh, society to immigrants if you compare America to you know just take another very advanced country, Japan. Uh, the Japanese have a real problem, and they have historically. Uh, not supported immigration. And as a result, they have, uh, you know, a very homogeneous society. Um, and, uh, and as a result, they also have a declining population, uh, which creates huge um, uh, demographic problems as people get older and there are fewer people to support, um, to support the, um, um, the, the benefits that, uh, that are built into, uh, into our advanced societies. Uh, so uh, so I, I would say we're, we're better off than a lot of other uh, a lot of other places. That's kind of at the at the macro level, uh, and of course we still have to do a lot more. And, and and there is a lot of effort. This also relates to our what we just said about women. Uh, how there's mm-hmm. so much talent that we want to encourage and continue to encourage uh, girls in in, mm-hmm. in middle school uh, to uh, and before that, for that matter, uh, to be thinking mm-hmm. about and getting involved in technology. And, and we need to be alert to teachers that. Whether they uh, often very inadvertently may be may be discouraging uh, young people or or, or, or girls uh, in particular, uh, but right. uh, uh, on the more micro level, from a company point of view, in terms of the skills gap, which you're which you're bringing up uh, as well, and it's such a critical thing. Um, I uh, uh, my, my take on on this is that number one, yes, there is a uh, a skills gap. Number two, we seem to still have pretty high unemployment. So that those two things are kind of kind of odd. I mean, companies need people, but yet there's a lot of people that don't have jobs. And so, what's the connection there? And part of it is training and retraining and, and development. But here's another part that I think um, doesn't uh, maybe get discussed quite as much, and in particular is relevant as we think about younger people entering the workforce, the millennial population, and the like. And that is. Um, uh, do they have the the attitudes and and uh, um, and, and and work ethic and uh, and makeup to do uh, what needs to be done to accomplish your goals on the job, um, and regardless of how talented you might be? I mean, this actually is a topic we can we can do an entire 
uh, session on because it's such a uh, uh, such a complex and, and multifaceted uh, topic. But um, uh, but to me, the the key things here are uh, it doesn't matter if you have great technical know-how if you don't know how to work with people. Uh, now there might be an exception if you're a coder in some startup, you know, in Silicon Valley where you're in the garage, you know, 24/7 and you're in front of uh, in front of your computer and you don't have to do anything but that. Uh, okay, that's fine, but that's not called management. That's not called leadership. And there's a clear limit to your to your um, your growth as an individual and and as a as a contributor to to the to the company. And take a break before we come back with Dr. Finkelstein, and he's going to jump from. Women projections to the worst CEOs of 2013, and we're going to be able to compare his thoughts about what should be to what was. You can also reach Dr. Finkelstein through his Twitter account, which is at S-Y-D-F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. We'll be right back, and we'll continue with his most recent article on worst CEOs Okay, well, uh, I have to say that uh, it doesn't really make me the most uh, popular manager, management scholar and pundit out there, but somebody <laughs> has got to call people on this because let's, let's face it, the amount of money they make for getting the job done, uh, it, it, to me, means the bar is high and you've got to perform. Uh, it's not an easy job, but uh, you've got to really perform. And so let me give you a quick rundown of, uh, of the top five worst CEOs. Uh, and then we, we can uh, we can kind of dig into a couple that uh, that you find most interesting. And uh, to create a, a little bit of drama, I'll go in reverse uh, reverse order. Uh, number five is uh, Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, and that's particularly interesting because just the other day uh, Microsoft announced his successor, uh, Satya Nadella. Um, Ballmer uh, is uh, ranked number five as worst CEO for a variety of reasons. Uh, including the fact that uh, if you look at the changes that have occurred in the um, computer, IT, technology world in the last uh, 10 years, uh, Microsoft has been an observer rather than a, rather than a player. Uh, whether it's in you know, music uh, and you think about uh, how iPod was such a revolutionary product uh, and Microsoft came up with the Zune. Uh, probably not a lot of people know the Zune because it's, uh, it's gone. It's not much to it. How about the phones? You know, iPhone and Android are just dominating. The Windows platform is there's not much to say. You want to talk about search? You have Google dominating. Microsoft comes up with Bing. It doesn't do much. Uh, how about mobile? I mean, it goes on and on. Um, and so, while Microsoft makes a lot of money because they do have monopolies in two core businesses that are Bill Gates built monopolies. You look at Steve Ballmer's um, capability. You look at what he was given as a as a leader when he when he started in around uh, around 2000. Uh, and you and you say, well, what really has he added to the to the pot? How has he changed Microsoft? And uh, uh, and and the answer is, I think a huge opportunity has not been exploited uh, for for a variety of reasons uh, related to management style, risk aversion, and just some bad uh, bad decisions. Um, continuing the countdown, number four, uh, Eddie Lampert from Sears. Eddie Lampert, there's a name uh, people will know in the hedge fund business. Actually, very successful in the hedge fund business um, um, and continues to be in that, in, in that business, but also is the CEO of, of Sears. And what a, what a record, you know, uh, losing $800 million uh, uh, through the third quarter of 2013. They've got $7 billion in debt and only $600 million in cash. 
Their market cap is down 70% from the peak. Um, you know, you can go, you can go through, through that, the list of financial metrics, but maybe more relevant is, you know, if you've been to a Sears store, you've kind of seen what's gone on. The, the brand, which was such a, you know, fantastic brand, really uh, struggling. The stores seem like a, a virtual, a virtual wasteland, um, uh, really finding it difficult to compete with Walmart and, and Amazon. And, uh, and maybe most specifically, uh, Eddie Lampert is running Sears like a, like a, like a financial institution rather than a, uh, a retailer. And uh, uh, you just can't win without any sense of, of merchandising capability, of understanding your, your customers, of motivating your employees. And, uh, and that's something that he hasn't, uh, he hasn't been able to do. And the question will be, uh, is there going to be a turnaround in the Sears? Is there any hope for the company? And, and, and I will say there is some hope because they got a lot of great real estate. That's not him being a manager. That's, you know, that's the company that they got a lot of real estate. Maybe the, maybe the answer at some point, as shocking as it might seem to, you know, longtime listeners that remember the Sears catalog and everything else, uh, well, uh, they, they may not be around in another two or three years. Who, who, who knows? Uh, certainly not a strong leader. Uh, number three. Uh, Thorsten Hines, the CEO of BlackBerry. BlackBerry, of course, is, uh, uh, has gone from market leader to, um, uh, to virtually disappeared, uh, in the, uh, in the cell phone business. Everyone had their Blackberries and, uh, uh, and now everybody's got their iPhones and their Galaxies and, uh, and, and what have you. Um, and while, uh, while Thorsten Hines, when he took over as, uh, as CEO of BlackBerry, the company was struggling, he, uh, he really didn't help, uh, uh, in fact, he, he just hurt the company uh, by uh, being unable to change uh, by actually his first announcement uh, upon taking the job was, you know, there's nothing really uh, wrong here. Uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to keep on we're going to keep on going. We don't need any drastic changes. You know, you're going into a company that's going down the drain. And that's the first thing you say. Uh, it, it's it, it, it's it's a calamity, in my opinion, of, of, of leadership. Uh, number two. Back to the retail sector, and that is Ron Johnson from J.C. Penney. Ron Johnson's a pretty famous guy uh, because he was the guy that worked with Steve Jobs in the Apple stores and actually helped create and roll out the Apple stores. Pretty impressive CEO, a celebrity CEO even, when he came to J.C. Penney. Uh, but um, it turns out that, uh, and this will be a shock to everyone, J.C. Penney is not Apple. Uh, and so he applies the Apple strategy uh, which is all about repositioning pennies as a higher-end brand, redesigning the stores into these sleek, hip places, eliminating all this discounting, supporting or trying to support higher prices, uh, a strategy that worked and continues to work for Apple, uh, turns out to be a total disaster for JCPenney because it's a completely different company. Uh, and actually, there's some really interesting management lessons that come out of the, the Ron Johnson story, especially around trying to apply a leadership uh, approach uh, or an approach to strategy, if you will, in, uh, in, in, a, in a company where it may have worked in the past but, or in another business, but it doesn't necessarily work in another business. And, and that actually is a really interesting leadership uh, um, uh, challenge uh, because um, so many of us try to keep doing what we've done before, uh, and it's our, it's our playbook. Uh, but the, the reality is if you continue to do everything you've done before, uh, and the world is changing. Uh, you're going to fall further and further behind. And even worse, you might, uh, you might implement exactly the wrong strategy. And that's what Ron Johnson did. And all that, of course, cost him, cost him his job uh, uh, along the way. And then um, 
Number one, uh, we're CEO of 2013, uh, probably the least well-known name to American audiences, uh, Ike Batista, uh, who is a Brazilian billionaire and uh, in the oil business and many other businesses. And the short, the, the short version is um, uh, he was on Forbes' list of the uh, wealthiest people in the, uh, in the world. He's actually number eight at the beginning of 2013 with a $30 billion net worth. And believe it or not, uh, over the course of the year, he lost 99% of his, of his wealth. Uh, I don't think I have to go much further to explain how, how somebody gets to the top of the list or bottom, as the case may be, of worst CEO. Um, so there you have it in a quick kind of okay. overview of the top five. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, let me comment uh, on your top five based on my own experience, and then I'd like to have you <laughs> go further and explain why this is true. But uh, I can't say much for uh, Steve Ballmer, although the question that comes to mind is there are people who are really good at starting something, who are entrepreneurial in nature, and then there's a are those who are much more comfortable in sustaining some, uh, whatever is dream building, kind of building that, you know, safety, secure, uh, uh, platform for the business to survive. And I, I had mentioned in one of our earlier conversations, I'm reading a book called The Bully Pulpit, a fabulous book. Uh, and it talks about, uh, William Howard Taft, uh, and Theodore Roosevelt. Talk about two different people. And Rose, uh, Roosevelt was more like Gates, and Taft was more like Bomber. I mean, he hated, you know, he, he was not a risk taker at all. That's one thing. This, um, the financial orientation of somebody who's taken over, uh, J.C. Penney, I, no, Lambert, what was his name? Lambert, um, J.C. Uh, Penney was Ron Johnson. Who's, who was the number four? Lambert? L-A-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-
But in a way, it is uh, comparable in that if they're not focused, if the CEO is not focused on on really providing service to the people who are who have helped support, who are in fact stockholders of that business, their customers, et cetera, vendors, and they're only focused on making a few people wealthy, isn't that isn't isn't there a morality clause in that as well, or not? Yeah, that's. Uh... Uh, it's hard for me to speak to the specifics of the legal uh, uh, issues there. Uh, I do know, though, that uh, you know the responsibility of, uh, of of management is to try to um, maximize shareholder value, uh, and there are legal cases around that. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of ways to uh, to, to get there, um, and most uh, I'll, I'll say enlightened and successful companies. Uh, almost, uh, almost, uh, with very few exceptions, understand that the way you actually maximize shareholder value is maximizing your value proposition to customers and maximizing your, your um, let's call it, value, uh, value and, 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 and growth and development proposition to employees. It's customers and employees mm-hmm. that are the two key levers, uh, levers that if you manage those groups really, really well, uh, it is almost always going to translate into making a ton of money and shareholders are going to love it. If you start the other way around and just think about um, maximizing shareholder value, you know, if that's, the, if that's your message to customers, uh, what's a customer going to think? Uh, uh, why, would I, why would I want to interact with you if I understand mm-hmm. that all you care about is making as much money as possible? Uh, mm-hmm. What does that mean to how much I could trust you? Right. What does that mean right. about how you're going to interact with me? Right. And don't get me wrong, I'm a... I'm, I'm, I'm a I live in a business school world. I work with companies around the world. I'm, I'm a capitalist. You are and, a capitalist. You are a capitalist. And I love it. Well, I and I love it. it. But, boy, you've got you to gotta have some common sense. Uh, some common well, sense you know, uh, Margaret Heffernan, who uh, is, you know, very, you know, willful, what we call willful disregard, makes the point that we are all shareholders. And if they only focus on a handful, then they're doing all of us a disservice yes. uh, and, and minimizing us. All right, let's go to, uh, and also, you know, what that also raises, and we don't want to talk about now, we really don't have time, and that is the compensation, uh, executive compensation, because so many people get more rewards for failing than they do for succeeding over the short term. Uh, BlackBerry, I am a BlackBerry fan. I am tech tired. I don't want to learn any more multiple things that break down and take my time up, and I was... Really sad, uh, and I'll tell you, the thing that broke my relationship with BlackBerry was when I spent an entire day trying to get customer support on uh, a serious problem with my BlackBerry. But what made it worse was reading later that at a conference where BlackBerry was, that BlackBerry was holding, everyone had a Samsung or, or an Android. Uh, None of them had a BlackBerry themselves. That's bad. <laughs> that's a bad, that's that's bad, bad news you know, for them. <laughs> that's really bad. And so Johnson with Penny, um, you know, that's, that's distressing. But isn't, again, why, I am sure that some executive search firm recruited this man into J.C. Penny. What in the world would have allowed somebody, the board, to think that he was the right match since he came from a different industry, blah, blah, blah? What, yeah, what do you think yeah, made this yeah. decision possible? Very interesting question because boards... You know, we haven't uh, we haven't <clears throat> talked about boards as much as CEOs, but boards are the ones that hire and fire CEOs, and they do have a lot of responsibility. And uh, I think in this case, you looked at someone that was just really a 
extremely high profile, walk on water CEO, it wasn't a CEO, but a senior executive at, at Apple. Uh, Apple was a walk on water uh, company. Uh, the Steve Jobs genius kind of get, provides a halo effect for anyone who works with him, um, even though it was probably Steve Jobs that was the real, uh, what, in fact, not probably, was the real innovator behind the creation of the stores. Um, and so, you know, you have that. And then you have to also remember that JCPenney had really been struggling. I mean, they were not doing well before Ron Johnson. He made it a lot worse. But they weren't doing well before. And so they did need some type of uh, new strategy. And so I could, I could see at a certain level uh, this, the, 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 the um, kind of getting enticed on the board to the idea of bringing in, let's bring in a completely different thinker, different world. Let's shake up this place because uh, we're, 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 we're really not going in the right direction. The problem is you have to, uh, and, and I like that idea. I mean, I, I, I like taking a bit of a risk in that regard. But you have to take it to the next set of questions, which, which are, okay, uh, what, what's he going to come here with? What should we expect him to do? What do we want him to do? And what oversight are we going to provide? And, uh, and, if, and, and, and if the message is, well, the Apple strategy can be, can be applied to JCPenney, lock, stock, and barrel, uh, and whoever thought that was a good idea, uh, I think is, is, is made a big mistake. And if the board really thought that he was going to do that, as opposed to saying, let's bring in the right guy, the guy that, that has this profile, uh, we don't know what to do, but he'll figure it out. Uh, um, and, and, and then the, if that's what the board did, then, then I think the, the, the board had a lack of oversight in kind of following and, and approving the types of changes that were being made. Well, uh, there's so, been yeah. a lot of uh, literature uh, addressing you know, the role of the board and their lack of oversight and responsibility. And uh, that, it, but you know, it's easy for us to comment on what they do since we're not in their shoes at that moment. Uh, is there from from these different lessons, these different uh, roles, profiles that you've selected? Is there some lesson? Is there some truth? Are there some universal uh, common commonalities that good leaders or bad leaders have? Yeah, you know. Like a foundation? Uh, it's a great question again, and uh, I, I guess there's a few things, but the one I'd want to highlight uh, as I as I reflect back on uh, on these five, and I think it's what I'm about to say is true, uh, it's absolutely true for four of the five, and Thorsten Hines might be the only exception, uh, uh, perhaps to this, and 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 it's the following: um, these uh, CEOs uh, are all or were, because many of them are gone now, uh, were. Uh, very high-profile uh, celebrity CEOs, really. Um, uh, uh, we used to use the word imperial CEO uh, a while back in the Enron days, and, and uh, to some extent, there's some truth to that. These are, these are high-profile celebrity CEOs, gigantic power, very few or very little um, um, checks and balances on them. I mean, you mentioned the board of directors. That's the most important check or balance on a CEO, but not just that. Uh, management teams that are afraid to speak up or are not that strong. Uh, I think that's true in every one of these uh, cases. And in, my, in the work that I've done uh, over, over the years on, on senior executive leadership, I think it's, uh, I mean, there, there, there might be some exceptions to the rule, but I, I, I think the, the best CEOs uh, are the ones that, uh, that are much more grounded in, in the real world, that have, have a significant degree of humility, of open-mindedness. Uh, of looking for um, and going out of their way to find reasons why their point of view might be wrong so they can 
they can make adjustments or if they think it's still the right way to go, mitigate the risks associated with it as opposed to just plowing through. And you, you look at, at Batista, the, the Brazilian CEO, I mean, he had his, his ideas and there was no one who was going to cross him on any, any of those things. Uh, Steve Ballmer at Microsoft was known for his, his, his need to be in control of everything um, and, and was really a dominant, uh, a dominant leader for years. I already mentioned, you know, Eddie Lampert at Sears and how it was really, it was only his approach. Ron Johnson came in with his mandate to change the world. I think in every one of those cases, you got the, the, uh, the over, overly powerful uh, CEO, not subject to appropriate checks and balances, that is allowed to go off and, and kind of do, do what it is they want to do, uh, and, 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 and that's a very high-risk strategy. And I would contrast that with, for example, the new CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, who, while you know, we, can, we can raise questions about whether it's the right person or not, in many ways I think it's probably the right one with, with, you know, with some concerns, but certainly a much more grounded, balanced, uh, collaborative uh, person, a person who understands teams and knows how to work with teams. I think that's, uh, that's the case. You look at uh, uh, Bob Iger at Disney, another great example. Uh, Iger has been a huge success, and if you recall, uh, he... Uh, uh, he's uh, the, uh, the guy now, he's been the CEO for nine years, and he's succeeded Michael Eisner, who was another one of these celebrity, uh, bigger-than-life CEOs that, uh, that was extremely successful for a short period of time and then hung on much too long, and, and Disney suffered, uh, suffered for it. Uh, or John Donahoe at, at eBay, a fantastic CEO, uh, uh, not at all a celebrity CEO. One who's not afraid to make tough decisions, but understands the importance of teams and, uh, and, and collaboration and open-mindedness and making adjustments. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I would say that's the, that's the biggest thing that jumps out as the commonality among these, these really uh, disastrous CEOs in 2013 and some of these counterexamples I'm suggesting uh, uh, from, from other companies. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but of all the CEOs of, uh, that you've talked about, only one was grown in-house, and that was Balmer, Right. All the others uh, were brought in from outside. Yeah, let's see. That's uh, 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 well. It's true for Lambert. And it's true for Johnson. It's true for Hines. Uh, I think in the case of Batista, he was—he's more of the entrepreneur that got gigantic, and so right. he, he created the, the the companies that he ended mm-hmm. up destroying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's a little different scenario there. Right. The reason I raise that is that it there's always been the question uh, is uh, good to great and. Uh, the Collins books on, you know, what makes a company great and that's building your talent from inside and growing, growing the talent. And those people would theoretically have a greater passion for the company, but, uh, we haven't seen that. Am I, is that, is that a, an issue, a ta- an element of well, successful leadership? I, I think the, I think the passion will, the motivation, let's call it, the incentives, Will certainly exist for insiders or outsiders, because uh, mm-hmm. at, at a minimum, their um, um, the, the, the upside of being successful is uh, quite uh, uh, quite dramatic. Getting back to the you know the CEO compensation uh, uh, issue, uh, so I, I, I think uh, I, I think the motivation is is there, but um, and it's not that outsiders can't uh, uh, can't do uh, can't do well. I think outsiders can. Uh, I think outsiders cer- certainly could do uh, 
uh, could do well. I think of, for example, Lou Gerstner way back in the ni- late 90s or early 90s, perhaps, when he took over IBM, when IBM was struggling and, and uh, it turned into a very successful company. And Marissa Mayer uh, has, has begun to turn around at Yahoo. It's, it's stalling lately, uh, but I think she made a, she's made so far a lot of good, a lot of good moves. So I, I guess to me, it's not automatically insider versus outsider. It's a, it's a trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. And the, what the outsider brings uh, is generally uh, greater energy around change, less beholden mm-hmm. to the past, and that might be what mm-hmm. you want in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and what the insider brings is, is deep understanding the culture of the company. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he or she knows where the bodies are buried. They're in a position to mm-hmm. do something uh, and mm-hmm. execute on a strategy or a new direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the ideal, I suppose, is you want a little bit, a little bit of both, but you, you can't. And so if you get the outsider who's got the energy to change and got the mandate to change, I think you can't forget that, that outsider can't forget uh, how important it is to understand the DNA and the culture of the company that exists. You, you may need mm-hmm. to make some changes, but you just can't blow it up. Uh, the company can't survive. I think JCPenney is a good example of that. So what, what would you think, the, if you were to take those people, the, the worth and the, the couple that you've identified as high, you know, very successful, if you were to ask them why they were having so much trouble, what do you think they would say on the bad CEOs? Um, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure where, where you're going with this one. Could you kind of... Well, I, I was thinking of, uh, you know, I, I had mentioned to you uh, earlier uh, in another conversation about hearing uh, Hank Paulson talk about his, I mean, talk about his leadership as Secretary of Treasury in, uh, you know, the beginning of this tarp, the depression, the economic fallout, the recession, whatever you want to call it. And he he came into that position from CEO as Goldman Sachs, correct? Is that it? And um, yeah, he, yeah. yeah, he said that the most important thing for him as a as a leader was to surround himself with a really strong team mm. of people who uh, who were honest, who had the same vision. I mean, he would help them make it be back, but make good decisions. But he also said that when he was Secretary of Treasury, Treasury, that one of the most difficult things was to had people who surrounded him who were not team players. They, he's in, and he referenced specifically that many of them were um, people who were going to be running for election for something, and they mm-hmm. were always working, watching out for themselves versus uh, the good of the of the you know the program, the company. That, so that would be an example of what I mean. Would they say, would these leaders who you're talking about say, I didn't have a good team, or the board didn't give me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny about it is most of the failing leaders uh, don't talk about teams, and that's one of the reasons they fail. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Certainly they might blame others, and I've seen that over the years in, 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 in talking to people about, talking to CEOs about what went wrong in their companies. Um, um, but uh, I, I think the, the, uh, there's, there's more of an I versus we uh, uh, culture or mindset uh, uh, among among these people, um, and while they may, uh, in retrospect or after the fact, blame blame the team the teams they have, I always say that you get the leaders and you get the team you deserve. And it's a question of what you do to develop them. It's a question of 
whether they feel like they can contribute, whether there's a role for them. I mean, you're not going to keep the best talent unless they can really feel like they can have a, an impact. And, uh, and it's up to the leader, whether it's a CEO or any, this, is, this applies, you know, to any leader of any team. Uh, are you creating, are you, are you carving a place for where the best contributors can actually make stuff happen? And if you're not, well, they're going to look for an opportunity to, to, to do that elsewhere. And, and right. then you're just left with a mediocre team. So, um, uh, uh, so I think team development of teams uh, and, and, and highly capable teams uh, is absolutely uh, critical. And the irony is that in a lot of these failing CEOs, uh, these the CEOs that are on the list of worst CEOs, uh, and it's true, you know, Ike Batista, the Brazilian entrepreneur, former Forbes, uh, number eight for wealth, uh, he, he went around and when things fell apart, blaming all kinds of people on his team. But he was the one that was driving, driving everything. And, and so, right. you know, it's just a kind of excuse making after the fact. Right. It's interesting. I ran into it at a panel discussion, the, uh, the president emeritus of George Mason University in Northern Virginia, which grew from you know, like a school that nobody had ever heard of to a school that's attracting, you know, people from over the world. And he is now retired, and he spends his time between, uh, you know, all the positions on boards that they're asked to do. And, and we were talking about what, what he thought attributed to his incredible success at growing that college, that university. And he said what he did was to, A, have a vision, and, B, make sure he kept in touch with every single person responsible for funding, for helping and supporting that university. So he really? would make the rounds regularly to handshake. So he didn't hide himself in the office. He didn't ignore yeah, the people yeah, that could yeah. impact his, his organization. And, uh, and I would think, too, that a lot of people who are you're talking about who don't see that. They don't see that they're playing a leadership role in, in, in the community, in the context of other people as well, because you talk about talent. They don't manage talent. Well, listen, we are out of time. You have been very gracious in, in providing and sharing with us your expertise and your time. Uh, we are we have been listening to Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, who is of Dartmouth uh, College and the School of Business, the Tech School of Business. He heads the executive program there and has written incredible numbers of books on leadership and uh, we're going to have him hopefully back and talk more about women in leadership, which is a passionate, uh, uh, we don't use that word, but a very strong uh, interest of his. And if you want to hear, uh, read more of his work, he's, uh, uh, is the columnist for uh, Sydney, S-Y-D-N-E-Y, Ways In. It's a BBC Capital publication. And uh, some very interesting and easy to read and digest and apply books. Thank you so much, Sydney. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to to sharing your your conversation with as many people as we can. It's been a lot of fun, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, one, I want to disconnect here a second.